Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamat, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things MedEd in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of a five-year-old with fatigue and fever. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A five-year-old male presents to the emergency department with unexplained fatigue over the past two days. The patient began experiencing fatigue two days ago, which is uncharacteristic for him as he is generally very active. His mother states that the patient has had intermittent fevers, which began one week prior. There has been no associated rash, bleeding, joint pain, abdominal pain, diarrhea, or vomiting. Per mother, the family history is notable for some blood cell disorder, which the child has started to see a hematologist on an outpatient basis for workup. The patient is not currently taking any medications or supplements. The patient lives with his family in a recently built home, and there is no reported exposure to toxins or harmful substances. The patient was brought to the emergency department due to increasing fatigue and the recent history of fever. The day prior to ED presentation, the pediatrician noted tachycardia and abnormally low hemoglobin levels, which again prompted the urgent evaluation. Upon arrival to the emergency department, the vital signs are notable for tachycardia up to 134, tachypnea up to 22 breaths per minute, O2 saturation of 98% on room air, and a normal blood pressure. The initial physical exam revealed a pale but active child not in any acute respiratory distress, and not appearing toxic. There was no obvious signs of hepatosplenomegaly, abdominal tenderness, no rash, bruising, or lymphadenopathy were observed. The patient was well-developed with a normal neurological exam. And notably, the child exhibited tachycardia and a gallop rhythm on cardiac auscultation. In the emergency department, the initial lab results painted a pretty concerning picture. The patient's hemoglobin was really low, coming in at just 3.7 milligrams per deciliter with a normal MCV. The platelet count was within normal range. The patient's MCHC, which looks at the hemoglobin concentration in a given volume of packed red blood cells, was mildly elevated. The patient's red cell distribution width was also elevated at around 22%, with the normal range being usually around 14 Lastly, the reticulocyte percentage, which is a marker of how quickly the bone marrow is making new red blood cells, was low at 0.7%. The patient was admitted to the PICU after peripheral IV access was established. Type and screen was sent, and the patient was started on oxygen therapy. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case that you just presented, we have a five-year-old with fatigue and intermittent fevers for the past week. Secondly, this patient is in the care of the hematologist uh, for an RBC disorder that seems to be genetic and is now presenting with abnormal viral signs and labs in the emergency department. The viral signs, including tachycardia, who now has abnormal viral signs and labs in the ED and is now admitted to the PQ. In the PQ, we see the patient has tachycardia, significantly low hemoglobin with elevated RDW and MCHC, and an inappropriately low reticulocyte count. This all bring up the concern for severe anemia secondary to an aplastic crisis in the setting of chronic hemolysis. 
So let's build on this case and let's integrate a short multiple choice question. In a five-year-old with acute anemia exhibiting pallor and tachycardia, which of the following physiologic events is most likely? A, 2-3 DPG levels increase, shifting the oxyhemoglobin curve to the right. B, as blood viscosity decreases, preload is decreased. C, cardiac output decreases with an increase in heart rate during anemia. Or D, oxygen consumption becomes supply-dependent at a hemoglobin level greater than 5. Rahul, the correct answer is A. In a child experiencing severe acute anemia, the physiologic adaptations are triggered to maintain oxygen delivery to the tissues. One such change involves the oxyhemoglobin curve shifting to the right due to an increase in 2,3-diphosphoglycerate, or simply called as 2,3-DPG. This promotes oxygen unloading at the tissue level. This change helps ensure tissues get oxygen they need even when hemoglobin levels are low. Another adaptation is that the cardiac output is typically increased due to normal volemic anemia. This is achieved through tachycardia, an increase in stroke volume. This change helps circulate available oxygen-carrying blood cells more quickly. Further, blood viscosity typically decreases in anemia, which can actually boost venous return and increase preload or the volume of blood in the ventricles at the end of diastole. This can further aid in raising cardiac output during a state of anemia. Lastly, oxygen consumption doesn't become supply-dependent till the hemoglobin is less than 5 grams per cent. To summarize, 2,3-DPG decreases oxygen's affinity for hemoglobin. Anemia is a potent factor for an increase in 2,3-DPG, as are other chronic processes, such as those that can lead to chronic hypoxemia. In essence, anemia arises from three major mechanisms. So the first mechanism is blood loss. Second one is decreased red blood cell production. Or the third mechanism is faster peripheral destruction. So hemolysis is actually the latter, which is faster peripheral destruction. And it is the premature destruction of red blood cells, and it causes severe anemia when it outpaces the bone marrow's ability to produce new cells. So this scenario results in fewer red blood cells, higher erythropoietin levels, and increased red blood cell production by the bone marrow. This is reflected by a surge in the percentage of reticulocytes in the blood. So if you notice an elevated reticulocyte count, I think it's worth considering hemolysis as a potential root cause of anemia. So in our case, what is very interesting is that we had a relatively low reticulocyte count in the setting of anemia, and this brought up the concern for an aplastic crisis. So Rahul, can you comment on the causes of hemolytic anemia from like an intensivist standpoint? Absolutely. So hemolysis is a key player in the development of anemia, and it can be broken down in two ways. The first way is extravascular hemolysis. So extravascular hemolysis arises from the red blood cell destruction due to inherent abnormalities within the cells themselves. And extravascular hemolysis typically is going to occur in the spleen. Examples of this could include, but are not limited to, sickle cell disease, thalassemia, hereditary spherocytosis, and enzyme deficiencies like G6PD. Alternatively, hemolysis can occur within the blood vessel. And that's what we call intravascular hemolysis. And these are going to be originating 
from factors that are external to the red blood cell and cause some sort of stress that is going to break open the red blood cells within the blood vessel space. We often see this with prosthetic heart valves that can cause turbulent flow and mechanical shearing, or even microangiopathic hemolytic anemias, such as disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, hemolytic uremic syndrome, or HUS, or thrombocytopenic thrombotic purpura, or TTP. Again, these are two general categorizations, and there could be some overlap when it comes to where the hemolysis is occurring. I think a crucial category to be aware of, Pradeep, is autoimmune hemolytic anemia, also known as AIHA. Now, these disorders occur when the body's immune system mistakenly targets its own red blood cells for destruction. Autoimmune hemolytic anemia can be either primary or secondary, and the latter is going to be linked to diseases like lupus, certain malignancies, infections, or even specific drugs like penicillins or cephalosporins, which can act as haptins. And we've seen many cases of cephalosporin-induced hemolysis. Now, warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia involves IgG autoantibodies attacking red blood cells, leading to their destruction, primarily in the spleen. And cold agglutinin disease often follows infectious etiologies such as mycoplasma, EBV, or CMV. Now, unlike warm, which is IgG, cold agglutinin is going to be IgM-mediated. And IgM antibodies bind to red blood cells, and in cold agglutinin disease, you'll primarily have intravascular hemolysis. Lastly, I think it's important for us to highlight PNH, which is paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. And PNH is a really unique form of autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and it often follows a viral illness. And in pediatrics, PNH is when IgG antibodies target the P antigen on red blood cells, causing intravascular hemolysis. Now, another presentation of paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria could be renal vein thrombosis or splenic vein thrombosis as the increased hemolysis can lead to endothelial injury and subsequent clot formation. Now, understanding these forms of hemolysis is key in managing anemia in the PICU, as the treatments and prognosis vary widely amongst these conditions. So, Pradeep, as we get more into the concept of hemolytic anemias, do you mind highlighting the typical workup for a patient in the PICU who you suspect having a hemolytic anemia? Absolutely. So in addition to a complete metabolic panel and a complete blood count with differential, you'll want to order a peripheral smear and a retic count. Other important tests include LDH or lactate dehydrogenase, haptoglobin, direct and indirect Coombs tests, and a urine analysis. Now, if you suspect a specific genetic or molecular cause for hemolysis, Get your hematology colleagues involved early. Their expertise is invaluable and they'll guide further specific testing. Also remember to save one or two samples of the patient's native blood before giving them any transfusion or any blood product like IVIG. This is crucial for further accurate molecular testing. And don't forget about infectious causes. If you suspect an infection is triggering the hemolysis, get your ID colleagues involved early. Sending viral PCR testing could be a good initial step. Thanks so much, Pradeep. So remember that when we talked about autoimmune hemolytic anemia and Pradeep just highlighted the workup 
for hemolytic anemias in general, it's important for us to understand a test known as the direct and indirect Coombs test. Now, a quick tip to remember this is that the direct Coombs test identifies antibodies or complement on the surface of the red blood cells, while the indirect Coombs test detects free anti-red blood cell antibodies in the serum. So when you have a Coombs positive anemia, your mind should go towards autoimmune hemolytic anemia as the underlying etiology. Now, intravascular hemolysis, such as microangiopathic hemolytic anemias, typically lead to a lower haptoglobin level, as when you have an intravascular hemolytic process, you release free heme, and that is then subsequently going to lower your haptoglobin levels. The appearance of fragmented red cells, such as schistocytes, are also going to be seen in the peripheral smear in a patient who has intravascular hemolysis. So, Pradeep, our patient has previously been diagnosed with hereditary spherocytosis and now is presenting with anemia and low reticulocyte count. Could you delve a bit deeper into the thought processes of how these two conditions intersect? Hereditary spherocytosis is an inherited condition that affects the red cell membrane, causing the cells to take on a spherical rather than their typical biconcave shape. This change results from mutations in the genes encoding for the RBC membrane proteins, leading to defects or deficiencies in these proteins. The spherical RBCs are less flexible and more prone to destruction or hemolysis, especially as they navigate through the spleen a site of active hemolysis. Presentation often include hemolytic anemia, jaundice, splenomegaly, and spirocytosis on the smear. Severity is gauged by anemia level, serum bilirubin, reticulocyte count, and spirocyte presence. Interestingly, the eosin 5 melamide binding test is a diagnostic procedure often used to confirm diagnosis of hereditary spirocytosis. And it carries with it a sensitivity of 90% and a specificity of 95%. This is now the preferred test for hereditary spirocytosis. Absolutely, Pradeep. And in the PICU, I think understanding the pathophysiology of hereditary spherocytosis is crucial as patients can present with acute crises that may demand immediate attention. So I think there are few potential scenarios in this patient that you should be aware of. The first one is hemolytic crisis secondary to hereditary spherocytosis. And this is characterized by rapid red blood cell destruction, leading to severe anemia, jaundice, and due to the release of bilirubin, potential gallstone formation, especially if it's chronic hemolysis. These patients may acutely present with tachycardia, fatigue, pallor, and increased reticulocyte count. Another presentation to be aware of in the setting of hereditary spherocytosis is splenic sequestration. Now, the spleen is responsible for removing these spherocytes, and the spleen can become overactive and start sequestering healthy red blood cells as well, leading to a sudden and dramatic drop in hemoglobin levels. Remember, on physical exam in splenic sequestration, you may palpate splenomegaly. The final presentation that I want to highlight is aplastic crisis. Now, this can occur if a patient with hereditary spherocytosis gets infected with a virus such as parvovirus B19, which temporarily halts red blood cell production in the bone marrow. This results in a sudden drop in hemoglobin levels. And because the patient's red blood cells already have a shorter lifespan, 
they can become very severely anemic very quickly. So to revisit our case, the patient's severe drop in hemoglobin, lack of reticulocytosis, and normal bilirubin levels suggest another mechanism beyond just simply hemolysis. This presentation brings up the concern for aplastic anemia. And given the patient's recent fever, we suspect a recent infectious event that has decreased red blood cell production. Parvo B19 PCR and corresponding serology in this patient suggested a recent or current infection as his IgM was positive. This implicates that there is a likely additional factor for his acute anemia beyond the superimposed hereditary spherocytosis the patient has. So Pradeep, as we get into our case, do you mind walking us through the step-by-step approach in the PICU for managing a patient presenting with acute, severe aplastic anemia? That's a good question, Rahul. And so the management of this patient centered around careful blood transfusion with the aim to restore his hemoglobin levels while avoiding fluid overload or heart failure. We delivered a slow transfusion of PETRAD cells, around 5 cc per kilo, over a prolonged period of, say, about four hours. We very closely monitored his vital signs and symptoms for any signs of transfusion-related complications. Once his hemoglobin level improved to about 6 gram percent, patient was safely transitioned out of the PICU to a regular floor. Patient received another unit of PECTRED cells on the floor, and that brought his subsequent hemoglobin levels to about 8.5% by the time he was discharged from the hospital. To aid his ongoing recovery and management of his uh, hereditary spirocytosis, we resumed his at-home regimen of folic acid. We also scheduled a follow-up clinic appointment for ongoing monitoring of his condition. Thanks so much, Pradeep, for highlighting that portion of the case. It's important to note that in cases of hereditary spherocytosis with severe anemia and increased reticulocyte count, or complications such as hypoplastic or aplastic crisis, poor growth, or even cardiomegaly, a splenectomy may be considered in the management of these patients. Now, typically, this is contemplated for a patient older than five to six years of age, and post-splenectomy prophylaxis and vaccinations against encapsulated organisms are key components of the management strategy status post a splenectomy. So, Pradeep, could you share with us some crucial clinical pearls or potential pitfalls that we should be mindful of in the PICU setting when approaching patients with hemoglobinopathies? Children with hemolytic anemias and uh, chronic uh, blood disorders, such as hereditary spirocytosis, due to the increased red blood cell turnover and active bone marrow, are particularly susceptible to aplastic crisis. If such a child presents with acute anemia, yet shows low or normal reticulocyte count, it is critical to consider and test for parvovirus B19 and other possible viral infections. I think today's discussion builds upon the knowledge we shared in episode 44, where we delved into the approach to critical anemia in the PICU. And I think that this episode will provide a more comprehensive understanding of today's topic, as well as how to approach severe anemia. So definitely check it out. So to encapsulate today's conversation, I want to highlight a few key takeaways that really apply in our PICU setting. Remember, hereditary spherocytosis arises from a defect in the red blood cell cytoskeleton, particularly in ancrin or spectrin. 
And I think this understanding is central to the hemolysis and just understanding the disease process. Now, keep in mind that hereditary spherocytosis patients face a heightened risk of aplastic crisis, often triggered by viral etiologies such as parvovirus infection. Early recognition of this possibility is crucial for effective management. And I think one of the lab tests that you can practically send in the setting of hemolysis is a reticulocyte count, which can help stratify your differential diagnosis and management. In terms of treatment, it's vital to transfuse patients with severe anemia carefully and slowly. And we need to do this to mitigate risks such as fluid overload and the potential risk for high output cardiac failure. A cautious approach ensures the patient's safety while addressing their critical anemic condition. This concludes our episode on hereditary spirocytosis and aplastic crisis in the PICU. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kumar, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening.